Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this podcast we're looking at the question of resilience. This was the subject of the sixth of our WRI webinar series looking at the impact of the COVID-19 crisis and how we can build back better. This podcast is a condensed version of the webinar. First, WRI's Christina Chan posed a question to Ulrika Akerson of the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, Sheila Patel on the Global Commission on Adaptation, and Martin Van Alst of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. People um, are increasingly aware today of how vulnerable our society and our economy is. COVID-19 is showing us that. Do you think that this awareness about our vulnerability makes us more or less willing to support vulnerable populations in preparing for another global crisis, climate change? Ulrika, yes, we are more willing, or no, we are less willing? Yes, I hope we are more willing. Sheila? Past experience tells you that when the crisis is over, everybody goes back to doing the things they used to. But I'm not very hopeful at the moment. Martin, how about you? I think I'm with Sheila. Um, I would hope yes, but I fear no. And I think we've got a hell of a job ahead of us to make sure it becomes a yes. There needs to be a much, much better resilience plan, which we were all saying should be done for climate change. And one of the things that I hope we will learn from this experience is that ongoing engagement, communication, a supportive attitude and value framework are the most fundamental ingredients of a resilience plan to addressing any form of disaster. It is certainly a glass half full and a glass half empty. I mean, I'm also really struck by the immense solidarity that is, uh, that is going through the world and, and solidarity locally, people caring for others in their own communities everywhere in the world, but also communities, solidarity globally, where we are getting a lot of support for the emergency appeal, for instance, that is out. I'm also seeing that to some extent that is already being pulled away from longer term investments to invest in the reduction of that vulnerability. And I think it's important that we really match those pieces up. Uh, It's critical that we do the immediate COVID response work, both for the health impacts and for the indirect impacts. As part of that, an important challenge for us right now is also manage the combined impacts of COVID and climate extremes. So we've already seen some of those, for instance, in Vanuatu and Fiji with Cyclone Herald passing through. Uh, we had evacuation plans ready, but then there was social distancing. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, in Vanuatu, at that point, there were no outbreaks yet. So it was a precautionary lockdown. And we uh, were able to lift that for a few days so that we could still evacuate people to safety. It's a signal of the sort of challenge that we face. And we're now actually reviewing our early action protocols for many countries in the world and reviewing the contingency plans to see how, how do we deal with social distancing in a shelter? Do we need protective uh, materials there? Do we need to move some people to higher ground rather than to the local shelter? Uh, really practical planning to some extent. And we've seen those, those challenges around the world. So it's important to think that this is not isolated only to communities in, in highly vulnerable countries like Vanuatu or Bangladesh. Uh, we've seen it with tornadoes in the United States, for instance, as well. Uh, we're currently concerned about heat, for instance, which is going to be a challenge, uh, especially for the most vulnerable groups, also in the most developed societies but it's going to hit even harder. Imagine a slum, for instance, where people are, are stuck inside, you know, less water available, uh, less places to go. Um, and so we're working on very practical guidance uh, that can especially also empower people locally. Because one thing that we've learned is that all of this requires really local action, even more so than before when 
maybe some people were still in the mindset that we could find global solutions that would then work everywhere. I mean, we first of all know it's super context specific, but right now, even with all the travel restrictions, and so we rely even more than ever on just doing what we can locally. So the question is, how do we empower that? On the one hand, making that really practical, local. On the other hand, with the right sort of ambition globally, because we are just facing an additionally challenging problem dealing with that resilience locally. And it's important that we work together and, and take that to scale right now during the, these times of COVID, but also in, in light of the looming crisis in terms of climate change and the, the increasing extremes that we're already facing. So a critical question for us is also how do we learn which gaps are we plugging now as a humanitarian system? How do we strengthen some of the, for instance, the early warning systems we're putting in place to deal with these climate risks? How can we keep that in place for the longer term? Where do we now need to fill gaps in terms of social protection, for instance, that we need to keep in place? Because what we're plugging as gaps now in terms of resilience are actually the things that we'll need, desperately need, in a changing climate as well. So let's learn from that. Let's invest in that. And also let's, let's make that a cornerstone of the economic recovery that is now already attracting hundreds of billions, if not uh, trillions of dollars. The main challenge for our partner countries is not COVID-19 itself, but the larger consequences this has on nationally and local level. Where all the poorest and the most vulnerable are, of course, the most hit when it comes to, to income, food security and so forth. But also, of course, the spread of the virus in uh, slum areas with non-functioning health systems and so on. I wanted to come to a bit of the environment, climate change related work. And, and there, of course, we see that the subsectors of urban energy, WASH, DRR are all very important. And also specifically the importance of the resilience of food systems in this uh, crisis we are facing. And also that is key, I think, in building people's uh, resilience to the current crisis. We are trying to push the sustainability aspects in building back better, uh, as well as the role of the destruction of our ecosystems and natural resources leading to the zoonosis and the pandemic we see at the moment. So, And at this very moment, we are discussing with our government on a new biodiversity initiative, trying to capture this. So that's also important, I think, in this context. We need to work to bring action for climate resilience together with action for pandemic resilience resilience. And I think that there is a risk of emergency responses bypassing local institutions. And the principles of building resilience are the same. I mean, empowering local communities and allowing them to identify solutions, but with the right information and integrated with uh, local planning systems. These sorts of big systemic changes don't happen by themselves. If we just let it go, we will just go back to normal and to a more challenging normal given the constrained resources. I don't like the war and disease analogies usually, but I think the analogy with the Marshall Plan after the Second World War is an interesting one. So this is a time for political leadership to really think about what is needed to rebuild economies and to rebuild the world that we want. Uh, and I think, for instance, you mentioned Kristalina Georgieva being one of the co-chairs of your, your commission. When the IMF is saving economies, what sort of discussions are we having with political leadership yes, in those yes, countries yes, also yes, yes, about yes. how we are reshaping? What are we collectively as a world doing, combining how we get through this immediate shock right now and what we do committing to the Paris Agreement, but also building a more resilient society for the future and a more inclusive society? I think the sort of global solutions that we ask for require a different level of ambition. 
And I think it's a discussion that world leaders need to have among themselves and, and at a different level than just how do we fix this little economic problem. There's a lot of really practical things I can advise, but in the end, that needs to be part of a bigger ambition. And if we do it as part of a bigger ambition, we, can, we have lots of really practical good ideas that can be implemented right away. So without just leaving it with the Kristalina Georgievas or the Angela Merkels or all, all the other world leaders, uh, I think that's also up to all of us. So this is something each individual citizen needs to be discussing with their, with their families, with their neighbors, and in the end, asking of their political leaders. This is going to be an investment in terms of the, the trillions going around of a similar order of rebuilding after a world war. So let's think about what world we want. I want to talk about my own transformation. I'm a grassroots activist. I work mainly with community networks and I make representations. Suddenly, I have the guts to talk to people who are negotiating with our, our finance ministers in the support of COVID to say, why have you decided to spend so much money on buying ventilators and building ICUs when all the medical practitioners are saying that the war on COVID is going to be one in primary and secondary health. And that when you take ventilators, in any case in the United States, 75% of people who go on ventilators don't come out. In India, it is 68%. So ventilators are a very quick, smart thing to do, to buy and say, we've got all this money, we've spent it. We know most of them are going to go into private clinics. The World Bank justifies giving that money because the governments want it. But now, with the kind of research we're doing, with the kind of doctors' conversations we're having, we are asking questions. We're asking questions to our health ministry. So I think that what was said before me is we need to have courage to enter the spaces that were hallowed, that we had no right to knock on those doors, to ask simple but very difficult questions. Is your economy going to only support and assist big industry to survive and assume that those big industries will, will trickle down everything? We know in the past that's not happened. So if you're going to work on transforming your economy, what investment, what delivery systems are you going to do to produce transformation in the 40% people who are destroyed by the wage loss in this crisis. If you can develop something for that, your economy will be transformative in that it will reach out to every citizen. We don't have these templates. Our economies are obsessed with GDP. Nobody looks at the inequity within locations, within cities. You know, economic metrics don't look at these things. There has to be a new alignment of people who are committed to transformation. If you want a green economy that is just, these are the fundamentals of that. I'm going to take some of the questions that we got. One question that we got was, what more can be done to protect vulnerable communities from the now certain increase in extreme heat events? Martin, you had raised the issue of heat, um, and I'm wondering if you can take this one. We are, as I mentioned already, anticipating a lot of practical challenges in the coming month added by even the, the, the direct sort of social distancing, the, the COVID impacts, the concerns about the disease spreading, uh, but also uh, indirectly, for instance, the food security crisis we're seeing unfolding. What we need there is the early warning and early action systems that we've had before, 
what can you anticipate in terms of shocks and what can you do beforehand to enable people locally, communities, sometimes countries, to manage those shocks in advance rather than first get the hit and then try to recover afterwards. We're working on that. It's, it's a change in the humanitarian system, I would say. The humanitarian system is much better at this than we were just five years ago. There's still a lot of opportunity to make that bigger, and we're working together actually in connection with the climate agenda in an initiative called REAP, the Risk-Informed Early Action Partnership. And an interesting notion there is also that it's not just about managing that short-term shock. So it's not just having an early warning system to get people uh, out of harm's way, uh, out of a storm, for instance, so that they survive the storm. It's also about using the information about who is most vulnerable and what parts of their lives are at risk, including not just their lives, but also their livelihoods, which then informs what's needed in that phase between an early warning and a shock, but actually also tells you what you can no longer do when you get an early warning, but should have done beforehand and actually need to build into your longer term planning in a community, in a city, maybe in a country, or maybe as a world in terms of how we approach adaptation. So that link between how we prepare in the short term and what we do in the longer term is really critical. And I think that's, I would say, doubly important now with COVID. And an exciting change, I would say, in the past year or so is that we're seeing much more synergy between the humanitarian perspective on this from the ground up with local communities and these global imperatives, say, from the Paris Agreement. And I'm hopeful that if we get the recovery from COVID right, we can actually create some of these scalable examples that we can take up to the level of say the Glasgow uh, moment when we'll see how we're doing with the Paris Agreement and see, yes, we have made progress with that COVID recovery money the past year, actually making people more resilient locally. Sheila, the question for you specifically is, is there any sense of how informal transit and mobility has been affected in informal settlements? Oh, it's been completely, I mean, uh, in most of our places, there is uh, no leaving the informal settlement. In Mumbai, there are, there's no public transport. Most of the taxis and the rickshaws are themselves fearful because many of the community people have caught the virus out of transporting people from the airport. And it's a tragedy that this whole pandemic started with people who, who flew into the country, into the city and were taken to different places and were serviced by different people in informal settlements. And that's how it's gone there. And you know, the other very big tragedy is that there is a lot of difficulty in large informal settlements for delivery of food packets or amenities or health services to them. I don't know the situation elsewhere, but many observatories are saying that with this kind of crowding and not being able to get out is also increasing tuberculosis and other infectious disease, which we never anticipated. The complete lack of transportation has doubly hit informal settlements. It has completely destroyed our ability to move food and help around. You know, it's like going into a war zone on an empty street. You have to get permission to move from one lockdown area to another. If you sit in a bus, there are a few buses that are made available for people who are going to hospitals. Uh, in a bus which could accommodate 35 people, only 10 people are allowed. So even those people who need to move have a problem. In India, we are dealing with terrible heat strokes and heat burdens. Just imagine you're living in, in a house which is uh, 100 to 400 square feet with houses back to back, so you don't have much ventilation. You have a tin roof. 
and you have 38 to 42 degrees centigrade. Very soon, we'll have monsoons. All these places are going to be flooded. They will have unexpected winds, which will make their roofs fly off. Usually at this time of the year, most of our community funds are used to help reinforce these structures to address at least minimally the climate process. That's not going to happen this time. The points you're making are actually pivot to, to a question that one of uh, our participants have asked. Alrika, do you think that most governments recognize that this is about building larger resilience to all threats rather than recovery from just this one? We have an ongoing discussion on building larger resilience. There is um, a paper just published on building back better that our government developed tonight. We have quite some years of experience with working on resilience. And uh, we have also uh, developed our nexus approach in many ways that hasn't been there before in terms of how we also join our what we do on, on uh, uh, within our humanitarian support with our long-term development cooperation. I think we shouldn't try and reinvent the wheel entirely and start with entirely new partnerships. We, we know each other to a large extent and uh, they are partly bridges that we knew needed to be built. And we've started to build a little bit, but the urgency of doing that has only become clear. So one of them is between the sort of classical humanitarian system, be that the international architecture with OCHA and the International Red Cross and so, all the way down to individual local volunteers or community groups doing individual response to the longer term development challenges of actually building more resilient communities, societies, economies. That's one. And then now with the climate challenge as a a third one, and maybe as a fourth one in some places, especially this question of of governance, fragility, conflict even. Um, So building the bridges between those communities is, is definitely one. If you start unpacking that, you see lots of institutions that operate not only just in those silos, but also on one level. So you have very effective community groups, but they're not connected to something at a, at a higher level and, and vice versa. I think it's one of, the cha- one of the really exciting things for me to work in the International Red Cross or Crescent, that we have national Red Crosses or national Red Crescents with local branches, with local volunteers, and then connected up to that international system. I see us being quite effective with that in the humanitarian space. I don't see the equivalent linking up in the climate space, for instance. So that's one thing we're trying to bring. I also still see institutions segmented. So what I mentioned earlier about early warning systems, the fact that we're getting better at this anticipation and early warning and early action. At the same time, I don't see the data that we're gathering for that effectively flowing into national development planning or longer term climate planning, for instance, in the, in the nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement. That is something we can do. And I know, for instance, the climate folks in the World Bank have developed a checklist on how to make COVID investments sustainable. Let's all look at that from all these different perspectives. And let's also make sure that leaders then see that and take it seriously when they're planning these investments. And then there's so much possibility for linking up and so much capacity already there in all of those places and all of those institutions. It's harnessing that rather than creating something entirely new. And that's partly what we're trying to do in this risk-informed early action partnership, specifically with, uh, in relation to that anticipation of risks of all kinds, including now in times of COVID and linking that to the longer-term climate and and development agendas. Sheila, would you agree with that, what Martin just said? Uh, We all think that everybody's talking to everybody. Those of us who work with social movements can tell you that the world of development is deeply exclusionary. We are all treated as clients and beneficiaries. 
Everybody tells us, builds our capacity, things we don't know anything. However, we have many instances where community leaders are invited to sit with ministers, with international agencies, and they startle everybody by bringing in a perspective that nobody ever thought about. So one of the interesting things that we have contributed to resilience planning in cities is we have challenged mayors whether they actually know every single informal settlement in their city and have contacts with people there. Because how can you develop a resilience plan for your city if 30 to 70% of the people residing in these most vulnerable places are not on your screen? And the reality is that most don't. In all the countries where we work, not even 10% of the mayors and city administrators have invited grassroots networks to sit with them to say, what do your people require? How can we help you? You know, there is no other crisis like COVID that shows that unless you have boots on the ground, you can't do anything. And the only boots on the ground are where people are organized. And no international investment facilitates this kind of ongoing mobilized communities in collaboration with other people. But everything is projectized. It's done in two, three years. You do it, you evaluate it, you go off. You don't produce sustained networks of poor people who can aggregate and create noise that forces you to listen. So for me, that's part of the new normal. Listen to what vulnerable groups have to say. They have ideas, they have suggestions, and they do a lot to help themselves. They are not helpless creatures. They have not survived on your charity. Later on in the discussion, the panel was joined from Kenya by Rosemary Atieno of Community Mobilisation for Positive Empowerment. I'm right in the village, uh, but uh, I want to say first in a nutshell that the COVID-19 has really impacted heavily on our rural communities. One, it has impacted in terms of livelihoods. It has impacted on our women in terms of basic needs, in terms of employment. Now, our women are basically women who go out into the field to work and earn an income, which is just basically food from the farm you eat, and that's all, hand-to-mouth kind of incomes. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit us, it impacted negatively on our women. Our women are not able to go out into the fields and do their work. They're not able to go out and do their normal household chores because many of them depend on household chores and uh, farming for their incomes. So you realize that uh, once uh, everybody is now back at home and you know everybody has to work from home and everybody has to sit at home, then you realize that there's a lot of gender inequality that is going to occur. We have had a very big rise in terms of gender violence because the men are basically at home. Some of them do not really have an income. And, you know, when there is no income, you expect women and men to start quarreling in the house. So we have been impacted negatively as women because uh, our women are women who just depend on the food that they grow in their farms. They depend on small economies. And the small economies have already been impacted upon negatively. Look at a woman who is going to the farm and is growing her some food crops and needs to take them to the market. The market is not there because of the lockdown. So you are not able to sell what you normally sell every single day. There's a lot of restrictions in the markets in terms of social distancing and all that. This is really impacting on our women. 
on top of the pandemic, then again, we have the floods that have really come up and are really costing us so heavily. Most of our populations have been displaced with the floods. We are, we are, our organization works in, the, in Western Kenya, which is really negatively impacted upon by the, the floods. And you look at Kenya, you see that the pandemic is not coming down. The spread is now right in the community and really spreading out. So in terms of gender inequality, our women are negatively impacted upon. We need to start thinking how we are going to get this back because after the pandemic, then it is not business as usual. We have to really think about what can really spark back the, the local economy for our women, what can really bring back food security to our women because you know food is a basic need. So I would want to see us sit on table and start looking at things that can bring back the local economy to our women very fast so that we bridge that gap. Because children are back at home and uh, there's not really much to be done, we are going to end up having cases of early pregnancies and early marriages. So again, this is going to impact negatively on us. So we really need to think very fast as civil society and as governments on what we can really do to spring back these economies. For me, the government should really start thinking on uh, what we can do very fast, like looking at how we can start building up these local economies by maybe providing simple loans for our women, which they can access and build back their economies. Start looking at how we can really subsidize for them in terms of food security before the lockdown is really opened up, like in Kenya. And that was Rosemary Atieno ending this shortened version of a live WRI webinar on resilience in Building Back Better in the time of COVID-19. As ever, you can find the full audio-visual recording from this, including slides, on the events page at wri.org or on our dedicated COVID-19 pages. You'll also find other Build Back Better webinars that we've already held and one still to come. You can, of course, catch them all on the WRI podcast, available wherever you download yours. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.